Welcome to Veracity Radio. It's been a busy news week, and we'll cover some of the most important items in tonight's show. This week, we saw BP continue to flounder in the Gulf of Mexico with our new oil disaster. Animals are dying in the Gulf, and BP's CEO wants his life back. Currently, BP claims its top cap is working to bring a little oil to the service, but considering their credibility right now, little they say is worth much. In international news, Israel raided a flotilla of ships destined for Gaza from Turkey. The flotilla had been planning for some weeks now to arrive with supplies, and we'll get reports on what happened and some of the discussions of the consequences of this action. George Bush was quoted this week as having admitted to authorizing the waterboarding of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and stating that he would do it again. Though no audio or video of the event was published, local papers and attendees have shared this news with us. And it comes a year and a half after the vice president admitted on ABC and PBS that he was also instrumental in the passage of this program. Tonight we'll have a jam-packed show for you and hope that you will appreciate the words of our various guests and are very humbled to have the opportunity to speak with them. As always, we welcome your feedback at veracityradio at gmail.com or visit the blog at veracityradio.com. First up, we'll hear a reading of the op-ed written by University of Utah College of Law professor Amos Gior. It's called The Bagram Habeas Decision, Bad Law, Bad Policy. Then I'll play an interview I had with Mr. Gior on Monday, which happened right after the flotilla, so we do have some discussion on that. And then we moved into discussing the global war on terror and some of the legal policies surrounding it. Then we'll have a talk with journalist Dar Jamal about the Gaza flotilla, a revisit to the attack on the USS Liberty, oil in Canada, theft of the Iraqi culture, and the need for independent journalism. We'll have a discussion about George Bush's comments with retired Brigadier David Irvin. I especially want to thank him for joining us on such short notice to clarify his comments that were posted in the Huffington Post this week, and the discussion on the consequences of Bush's admission. And then, as we enter June, it is important to recognize that this is Torture Awareness Month. Joining us to discuss the details and the events surrounding this will be Larry Seams of the ACLU, and then we have an extended interview with former FBI agent Colleen Rowley. Rowley and I discussed the Free Gaza Flotilla, the War on Terror. We'll have a visit with Jess Levin of Media Matters to discuss the BP contribution, individual contributions, and Obama. What is the truth behind the 71,000 individual contributions in the 2008 election cycle? And last, I'll feature some archived audio from an event that held in Houston a few years ago with the family of Rachel Corey. These feature letters written by Rachel and read by local activists and finishes with a few words from Cindy Corey. We have a packed show, so let's get started. First up, University of Utah College of Law professor Amos Giora's op-ed and an interview with him about the Bagram decision. The D.C. Circuit Court's recent decision overturning a holding extending habeas corpus rights to Bagram detainees is a dark hour for the American judiciary. Simply put, the court's unanimous decision violates human rights. The court argued that detainees held in a, quote, active theater of war in a territory under neither the de facto nor de jure sovereignty of the United States and within the territory of another de jure sovereign, end quote, are not entitled to habeas corpus. The decision results in a judicially sanctioned indefinite detention regime. In its decision, the circuit court sanctions the indefinite detention regime implemented by President Bush, largely maintained by President Obama. Indefinite detention flies in the face both of the rule of law 
and morality in armed conflict. In other words, the court guarantees continued denial of basic due process rights to thousands of detained individuals. Those individuals, some justifiably detained, others not, are innocent until proven guilty. Because of the circuit court, adjudication of guilt or innocence, much less habeas protection, is but a pipe dream. My 20 years' experience in operational counterterrorism decision-making unequivocally convinced me that detainees must have their day in court. Otherwise, adjudication of individual responsibility is placed in abeyance more permanent than temporary. While former Chief Justice of the Israeli Supreme Court, Aharon Barak, wrote, The logistical considerations of the state must not be a barrier to individual rights. Late Chief Justice Rehnquist argued that in times of armed conflict, the court must be reticent with respect to the executive branch. Regrettably, the D.C. Circuit Court adopted Rehnquist's approach. Its decision flies in the face of Barack's thesis that detainee rights outweigh other considerations. Operational counterterrorism demands respect for and application of human rights. To that end, even under extraordinarily complicated operational circumstances, both initial detention and subsequent remand of Palestinians suspected of involvement in terrorism were subject to independent judicial review. In accordance with prosecutorial discretion, indictments were filed when supported by evidence. At trial, either before Israeli civilian courts or military courts in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, defendants confronted their accusers in accordance with rules of criminal procedure and evidentiary requirements befitting a Western democracy. In other words, adjudication of criminal responsibility was guaranteed in a trial before a court of law. Critics have pointed out that the overwhelming majority of Palestinians are convicted based on plea bargains, thereby suggesting a fundamental flaw in the system. However, similar statistics can be found in criminal cases in most major American cities. In both systems, defendants have the right to a full trial. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said for the approximately 25,000 individuals held directly and indirectly by the U.S. in Afghanistan. Israel has, over the years, administratively detained tens of thousands of Palestinians. The primary justification is the requirement to protect intelligence sources that provide vital information regarding future terrorist attacks. During my military service, I served both as military prosecutor and judge in administrative detention hearings. In addition, I was tasked with providing senior military commanders legal advice regarding individual detention decisions. The process is highly problematic and controversial because the detainee is denied the right to confront his accuser. It has been widely criticized by the human rights community. However, the decision to detain is subject to independent judicial review by the Israel Supreme Court and is term-limited. The measure represents an unsatisfactory resolution to an improbable dilemma confronting decision-makers seeking to prevent future terrorist attacks. Flawed as it may be, this process seeks balancing legitimate national security considerations with equally legitimate civil liberties. There is obviously no perfect process with respect to counterterrorism. I have made innumerable decisions with inherently flawed and problematic dilemmas. However, the guiding light 
must be granting the detained individual rights. Decision-makers hiding behind the cloak of convoluted judicial decisions significantly hamper legitimate counterterrorism. The test is facilitating justice under fire. It is an extraordinarily complicated mission. Precedent suggests it can be achieved provided the executive branch is committed and the judiciary does not provide unwarranted protection of government. The decision by the D.C. Circuit Court provides the executive branch deeply troubling cover. Comparative counterterrorism analysis demonstrates granting detainees' rights are essential to lawful operational counterterrorism. It is easy to create legal constructions that justify denial of basic rights. Our legal system is the beacon on the hill when it protects otherwise deniable rights. The paradigm must be why, not why not. Hopefully, the D.C. Circuit's decision is not the last word, and the Supreme Court will render justice where justice is due. That is the essence of operational counterterrorism subject to the rule of law. So, Amos, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, before we get to the thing I wanted to talk about mainly, which is the Bagram decision, I'd like to talk a little bit about what has happened off the coast um, with this flotilla. First off, do we know how far out um, this flotilla was? Because I heard it was in international waters. I think that that's a safe assumption on your part, Chris, that it um – that the, the the rappelling from the helicopters down from onto the ship uh, took place outside of Israel's territorial waters. I think that's that's common consensus. Now, would that basically allow Turkey to provoke Article Five? Is there no, any I justification that, to that? Because that ran around quite a bit yesterday. Yeah, I, I think the answer to that is clearly no. It's important to put things in 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 perspective and. I would suggest the following in terms of context. One, there clearly is a blockade that the IDF, Israel Defense Forces, uh, imposes on uh, Gaza. And the reason for that clearly is going back four or five years when over the course of time when you know, 10 to 15,000 or 13,000 rockets were fired from Gaza into Israel, which led to Operation Cast Lead approximately two years ago. Mm-hmm. In the aftermath of that, indeed, a blockade was has been imposed on Gaza for the purpose of, of preventing um, material which facilitates missile-making coming into Gaza and also would prevent uh, the entrance into Gaza of, of people who are, frankly, terrorists. And so the way to, to, to prevent that, protect that, is by creating and imposing a blockade. There's no doubt that the blockade has come under significant international condemnation for a variety of reasons, and I think primarily because it's been perceived to have blocked humanitarian aid goods coming into Gaza. According to Israeli officials, humanitarian material goods um, are coming to Gaza on a regular basis, meaning that from the Israeli perspective, the uh, blockade does not prevent humanitarian aid. There are those who disagree with that, so that's clearly that's an important question. Now, with respect to uh, the convoy, I think it's pretty clear there were six ships in this flotilla. Five of them absolutely reacted in, in accordance with the instructions given by the Israeli Navy to stop, and then they would be escorted into the port of Ashdod, which is in southern Israel, and from there the goods would be transferred into Gaza. The sixth ship, the largest ship, 
That's where the complications are. It looks like a cruise. It was a big cruise ship. It's a it's a very large ship, correct? Um, with at least three floors on it, three stories on it, three stories, three floors on it. Um, and there, on that ship, there is no doubt that there was a a group. I'm not sure the numbers, who were cruelly there to provoke. Um, and they're the ones who, for lack of a better word, and pardon the English, actually pummeled, and you can see it on the video. Yes, I did. Uh, pummeled the Israeli soldiers who were, were pulling down. Um, it's, it turns out, according to a report which I saw today, only after the commander of the unit, who was not there, he was elsewhere, um, saw the soldiers literally at, at, life, at risk of loss of life, their loss of life. That's when he authorized them to open fire, and that's when nine people were killed. Now, in terms of the, the important international law questions, international law says if there's a blockade, the nation state has the right to prevent a, a, a ship or ships from, from running the blockade. And here, the, Israel, over the course of the past couple of weeks, has reached out to the organizers or this group from Turkey called IHH. Israel requested that they not run the blockade. They requested they come to Israel, as they're saying, and that the goods be transferred to Gaza. To Gaza. Israel also, either directly or indirectly, turned to the Turkish government and requested the Turkish government, you know, implore this Turkish organization not to run the blockade. And that obviously fell on deaf ears. And so over the course of the past couple of weeks, there has been this, I don't know if I would use the word negotiations, but ongoing dialogue discussion. Israel made very clear that the goods would be transferred to Gaza, but no, the ships could not go to Gaza when the ship made it very clear that they were not going to accede to the, you know, to the order of the Israeli um, Navy um, was it now yesterday, 36 hours ago or so. Um, you know, they say the rest is history. What's important in terms of international law is that the blockade is legal. Blockade is, is, raises obviously international condemnation, but the blockade is legal. Preventing a nation, preventing a ship from running a blockade is also legal. Israel clearly gave due notice not to run the blockade, yes, that the goods would be transferred to Gaza, and that, no, you cannot run the blockade. So, you know, there's been an argument raised that Israel acted as a pirate state. Well, pirates don't give notice of what they're going to do, and they don't act in an orderly, processed, directed manner. I'm well aware, obviously, and, you know, of the enormous criticism, A, of the blockade, and B, of the fact that, you know, the soldiers' actions led to the deaths of the nine people, the position, obviously, of Israel is that the, the pummeling, I mean, there's no better word for it, the, the absolutely brutal pummeling of, of the soldiers clearly demonstrates that those who were on that ship were not there for humanitarian purposes. People interested in humanitarian missions don't pummel and brutalize soldiers, which is what these people did. So they were clearly provocateurs, there's no doubt about that. The people on the other five ships absolutely acted in accordance with what was requested of them, and they absolutely fulfilled their humanitarian mission, because the goods, as we speak, the goods are now on their way to Gaza. So five out of the six ships absolutely did as requested, and, and the, 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 the Gazan population is the beneficiary of that, and that's the way it should be. The people on the sixth ship, I don't know if you've seen on the Internet, the enormous amount of, 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 of arms, I mean, not, not firearms. There, were, um, there are hoes and there are, there are you know, metal rods, and there are knives, and there are swords. They clearly ambushed the soldiers. That's not what humanitarian missions are all about. Looking, looking at what happened in that situation, I'm reminded of police actions in the U.S. 
and really other military actions around the world where uh, what may be on paper legal is really terrible PR or a terrible, basically, yeah, public relations fiasco because in the end, uh, the amount of force applied to what would maybe a reasonable audience seems over the top. Is there, um, aside from the legalities, do you think there's um, a chance that this is, I mean, it's going to become a basically a bad PR um, situation? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think that from a from a public relations perspective, uh, there's no doubt that, that Israel has taken a real hit here. It also needs, I agree, I would agree with that. But I would add to that, there's no doubt that Israel fell uh, into a well-laid trap for it by this Turkish organization, unclear if, with the uh, facilitation, yes or no, of the Turkish government. Um, but I think the more important issue here, and the one that we really need to be thinking about, is is the one going forward, and that is what is the what is the future and what is the future face of Turkey. Mm-hmm. You know, if we think about history back in the in 20, 1922, 1923, when Ataturk mm-hmm. created the secular state of Turkey, uh, his idea really was to have a secular state of Turkey, and it's clear that's not what Turkey is today. Right. And so one of the really important geostrategic questions is, is Turkey now aligned with Iran, with Syria, you know, as, as the conduit for the, you know, for the storage of weapons for Hezbollah, that Iran has supplied Hezbollah, which are being stored in Syria, and where's Turkey net? It's important to remember from a strategic perspective that Turkey has been Israel's, quote-unquote, best friend in the Arab world. There have been great relations between Turkey and Israel. Uh, Turkey is a, is a very popular resort spot for Israelis. Mm-hmm. Um, there are military, joint military um, training missions. That clearly has come to a, a screeching halt. Absolutely. Right. I think clearly, deliberately, by the Turkish government. I think in many ways, you know, one day historians will look back on this and they'll ask themselves who used whom. The the humanitarian mission, which is five of the six ships, yes. The sixth ship, absolutely not. And that's what this, the IHH was, the Turkish organization. Um, and I would think that from the perspective of decision makers, you know, in Washington, in Europe, obviously here, here being Israel, there's enormous, or should be, enormous concern about, for lack of a better term, the, you know, the Islamization of Turkey, and how does that, comma, potentially, comma, affect international geopolitics and the international geostrategy. Mm-hmm. So the event yesterday is significant. The event yesterday will, will, like many of these kinds of incidents, will will die a natural death. What will not die a natural death are the more profound questions with respect to Turkey. That's, I would suggest, we need to get beyond the the, the noise now, you know, the UN condemnation and the demonstrations and, and, you know, all all the noise, because the noise will die, because the international events happen so so quickly and so dramatically that, that the noise is, 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 is transient. What is not transient is the the significant the significance of the altered relationship in terms of a what is Turkey and clearly Turkey's relationship with Israel. Also, the other ambassadors who were withdrawn, we will recall right the Turkish ambassador. Right, but here too, one has to be sensitive to the diplomatic code. Turkey recalled its ambassador um, from Tel Aviv for consultations, and in the. Uh, the sliding scale of, of which nation states um, 
display, articulate their their public anger one with the other. Recalling an ambassador for a consultation is 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 not is is, is unpleasant, but is not much more than is not much more than unpleasant. And what about the other countries like Belgium, Bulgaria? I heard that some of those countries did. Is that just pretty much side? No, I've not heard about any other country calling its ambassador. I think that this kind of naturally uh, moves into the initial thing I wanted to talk to you about when I read your article on uh, the Bagram habeas decision. And it's uh, it's really looking at the effectiveness of various anti-terrorism policies, including uh, and the case of the article was about detention, but clearly your experience, um, your you know, JAG Corps experience and uh, your experience with U.S. law, you've seen how policies that have been enacted do not deliver the results that I would say you would probably agree that uh, were intended by uh, whoever created the policies and, and implemented them. What What do you think is called for with dealing with extremist groups that will – uh, promote a more sustainable peace, or at least move us there. Or, or is that too general a question? No, I think that's a great question. I think that the there are a number of there are a number of first things that we have to do. One, we have to articulate to ourselves that we are not going. We being the the, the victims of terrorism, mm-hmm. um, the potential victims, we are not going to defeat terrorism. The best you can hope to do is either to minimize terrorism or to manage terrorism. The second thing that you that we have to absolutely articulate to ourselves and then implement is what I call a rights-based regime. And if I think about the Bush administration and, and today the Obama administration, I'm frankly extremely critical of both for failing to articulate and implement rights-based regime. And in in simple human in simple human terms, the fact that there are you know thousands upon thousands of detainees held presently in Bagram who are in a paradigm of indefinite detention with no right to habeas, mm-hmm. they are absolutely in some kind of a, not only not a, an, only an existential black hole, but they are in a practical black hole. And I find it. Obviously, extremely troubling that when Obama was running, he promised to close Guantanamo. And then he established these three task forces to, to develop policy, articulate policy, about detention, about interrogation, and about where to try the suspected terrorists. We're now in June of 2010. He's been president for a year and a half. And in that year and a half, from my perspective, as someone who is extremely sensitive to the requirement to protect the rights of those who are particularly vulnerable, I don't see any difference between Obama and, and, and Bush. And what was said in the campaign was, you know, said in the campaign. It's what you see from this side of the desk is then what, what you see from that side of the desk. And I, and I keep going back to what Attorney General Holder said a couple of months ago when talking about Guantanamo when he said that this is a lot harder than we thought it would be. And I thought to myself, I scratched my head. You know, I don't have any hair. So I don't scratch my head. <laughs> And, and I thought, you know, that's not really what I would expect to hear from the, from the Attorney General. And they're incapable of, of articulating a policy. So if you don't have a, a rights-based regime, we haven't articulated, are we in a criminal law paradigm? Are we in an international war? Are we in a war paradigm? Are we in a hybrid paradigm? <clears throat> then you don't have policy in place that enables you to have a, a lawful paradigm for how to detain how to interrogate, and ultimately how to try 
individuals, individuals suspected of involvement in terrorism. The reality of, of the American political um, milieu is that the Congress, Republican and Democrat alike, um, is not going to be a participant in this. They leave this to the executive branch. And then what I found so troubling in the D.C. Circuit Court's decision, and that's you know, the impetus to the um, op-ed, is that a D.C. Circuit in overturning Judge Bates, Judge Bates' decision about This would habeas, be John Bates? Um, I'm sorry, I don't remember his first name. Okay, go ahead. The U.S. District Court judge who wrote the, the opinion granting habeas to the Bagram detainees. In the D.C. Circuit Court's opinion overturning that and denying habeas, what they're really doing is they are granting extraordinary powers to the executive. Mm-hmm. American history is replete with examples of what happens when the executive makes decisions when under direct or perceived threat. And the internment of Japanese Americans in the immediate aftermath of uh, Pearl Harbor is but the best example of, of an executive in a panic mode. And then the Supreme Court, in, 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 a, in the most infamous case in Supreme Court history in Korematsu, uh, acceding to Roosevelt's internment of the Japanese Americans. And I would suggest here we are in 2010 <clears throat> with an executive incapable of articulating a policy and a judiciary that plays along with that. Right. And when, I, and I, when we think about rights, we have to think at all times that, as I say, in the, as I wrote in the op-ed, if you intend to be the beacon on the hill, if you intend to be the beacon on the hill, then, then it means that there are indeed limits imposed on the executive. By the way, you know, in a, in a paradigm where there are no limits imposed on the executive, it certainly doesn't guarantee success. I mean, if you think back to the Bush administration, obviously the Supreme Court um, was, was very lenient with him, uh, allowing him extraordinary liberties in terms of the, you know, the unitary executive theory. Congress was at best acquiescent, and I would not say that that extraordinary executive authority led in any way to effective counterterrorism. Here we are in Afghanistan and Iraq nine years later, right. and so the, 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 the importance of the, um, the decision from last week is not only with respect to the individuals who are now de- de- denied habeas, but it's much more profound than that because we are now granting the executive broad powers. And I would suggest that this executive, just like the previous executive, does not have a clear, articulated policy that will enable him to conduct effective counterterrorism subject to the rule of law. A couple of weeks back, I spoke with Colonel Morris Davis, former chief prosecutor of Guantanamo Bay, who uh, quit over torture allegations. And um, when talking no, to him... On. Wait, just a second. First of all, Colonel Davis is a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Colonel Davis is an interesting story. When Colonel Day, when I was teaching at Case Western Reserve, mm-hmm. today teaching at the University of Utah, when I was at Case, um, Colonel Davis gave his first public speech, and uh, it was covered by C-SPAN. And, and Colonel Davis took the camera in the eye and said the following words: "If I will be ordered to submit um, confessions that have been gained, garnered from torture, I will resign my post, not my commission, but my post." And then he was, when he was ordered to do so, he indeed did resign his post, and he is truly not only my friend. He is truly a man of extraordinary integrity. It takes a lot, and he didn't hesitate. A lot of people held on and then quietly spoke after they left. And uh, I asked he did him, not. yeah, I asked him specifically about the right timing. Now, when we he and I talked, we had a little bit of a disagreement uh, about habeas. Uh, my understanding does not come as an attorney, but as a um, supposed descendant of John the First and the barons who forced him to sign the Magna Carta. 
and I've I've been fascinated with the Magna Carta and our basic change to common English law ever since. And one of the things that I've, as a just a civilian layman, non-lawyer, enjoyed about that is that in our system, if a person is actually guilty of something, uh, we've given them all the proper uh, remedies for um, supporting what are the rights we hold for them. But if a person is innocent, we definitely, hopefully, keep a, a uh, open mind through the whole process. And in America, frequently when people are con- con- um when they're accused of something and put on a uh, public trial before their trial, many people like to chime in and say, this person's guilty. That person did this. I will look at their face. And, and there's this whole pre-guilt that goes on. And in my mind as a, a, a citizen, I would want to know we had the right person, not just someone who fits my bill, not someone who makes me feel like, oh, I'm safer tonight because they caught someone. So without habeas, I have no way of knowing if this person is really ever going to be the person I'm dealing with because I haven't taken the very evidence and given it to them uh, in some form to uh, to refute. And I'll give one example. Abu Zubaydah. And there was a large narrative about Abu Zubaydah. It was very elaborate before we got a chance to read the uh, the narrative from his CSRT. And when you read his CSRT, he basically shoots down half the government's case just in very common um, language. He's just saying, "Oh no, no, no! You got that wrong. You know that's that's bigger. You know that's too big. That's not what was really happening." And it, it wasn't until I got to read what he said versus what they said that I can almost see a full picture of what who this guy is because he admits what he did uh, in Calden Camp, for instance. But he also clearly explains who he's not. Now, I might not agree with him. I might say his his testimony is false. But without that process happening, I have really no way of knowing. Is that basically why habeas is valuable, or am I missing something? Habeas, habeas, and you're right to, to go back to the Magna Carta. Habeas and the whole idea of due process guarantees that the individual will be brought before some independent authority, a judiciary, in order to ensure that his, you know, the expression that his body is seen, right? Right. That, that he's not, like what I said to you earlier, not only not in the existential black hole, but not also in the practical black hole. Right. And the whole idea of habeas is indeed to protect the rights of the individual. It doesn't mean that he's not potentially guilty. It doesn't mean that he didn't potentially commit some heinous crime. But what it, it does do is it, it guarantees protection of the individual, that his body is seen, he's accounted for, right. and that some, and, and a judiciary can can de- determine whether or not there's justification for his for his continued remand pre-trial. To deny that to to these individuals in in Afghanistan, and it, you know, it's an open secret, obviously, X percentage of them, the overwhelming majority of them have been detained based on, on, on human intelligence sources. Right. It's $5,000 bounties. Open, I'm sorry? And $5,000 bounties. Right, and it's obviously an open secret that X percentage of that X percent have been tagged by by human sources in order to close various um, tribal accounts, if you will. You know, that person A uh, did something to person B, or person B somehow irritated person C, and so on, so on, so on. And because 
we are totally dependent, or largely, never say totally, we are largely dependent on information received from these human sources. I am doubtful that we have really sophisticated mechanisms to determine their authenticity. We're obviously uh, language deficient, obviously. We're also in many ways not culturally nuanced in terms of, you know, the various tribes and the, and the, and the tensions, the historical tensions between the tribes and Afghanistan. I mean, right. at the end of the day, never forget that Afghanistan is not really a nation state as you and I know nation states to be. It's a, it's a conglomeration of, 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 of untold tribes, each with its own culture, each with its own language, and so on with its, with its own history. Mm-hmm. And so X percentage of the people who, who are being detained on our behalf are, some of them may be really bad people. X percentage of are not. The only way to determine that is to bring them before a judge to determine whether or not there's sufficient either intelligence information or criminal evidence to go forward with a trial, yes, no, maybe. But if you deny them that right, then what you have created is absolutely a rights-less paradigm. Right. That, I would suggest, going back to my expression, is absolutely the antithesis of the beacon on the hill. So, again, I want to ask this nuance, uh, but I'm thinking of, again, habeas is not so much as an individual right, although it has that quality. I'm thinking of it as something that every process should have, not because of the individual right, but because of the need to know by the rest of the body, the rest of us that want to know. And that's not something I really ever hear in the last eight years. I always hear it as because of this, this split in America to want to not give rights to someone and not give rights. And I'm thinking, okay, but that's, that's fine. I, I can understand that. But again, what about the process? And to me, that that's the side of the discussion that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention. So I have two responses to that. Assume, as, as you may know, I, for 20 years, had a seat at the counterterrorism table. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm, and having been involved, obviously, in, in a wide range of, of counterterrorism decisions and counterterrorism dilemmas, I absolutely emphasize that we must be sensitive to the rights of the individual. We must be sensitive to the rights of the individual for two distinct reasons. One, because of the individual. We've got to protect him or her. Two, and I think this is what you're getting at, Chris, is that it's important for us as a society to ensure that we are not holding, detaining, or potentially trying somebody who is, should not be, have been detained in the first place because it also reflects poorly on us. I mean, if you believe in the idea of, of the moral soul of a, of a society, if we are detaining thousands of people, it ultimately, you're right, reflects poorly on us, particularly if there is, again, no process in place to determine individual adjudication. So how how would you compare the progress that's happened in Israel? Because I noticed that there have been some changes in, uh, for instance, the interrogation programs and in the United States. Can you compare and contrast a little bit about these two? Uh, you're in a unique position, by the way, to do so, and I, I'm, I'm glad we have you here for that. To these two efforts. Yeah, there, there, are, there are some significant and, and, and takeaways in terms of differences between the two. First of all, keep in mind, for starters, that in Israel we have judicial review of the executive through something we call the High Court of Justice. The High Court of Justice is the Supreme Court sitting as the High Court of Justice. And in simple English, it means that somebody who believes that his rights or somebody who believes that somebody's rights have been or will be violated petitions to the High Court of Justice and there's a hearing 
not tomorrow, but tonight, to ascertain, determine whether or not that person's rights have been violated. So here in Israel, the idea of active online judicial review of the executive serves as a powerful deterrent of executive action. Both in Israel and in America, there's a very weak legislature. The Knesset, the Israeli parliament, is as ineffective as the American Congress is, is, is ineffective. The fundamental difference then in the context of separation of powers and checks and balances is that the Israeli Supreme Court, sitting as the High Court of Justice, does not defer to the executive. <clears throat> and the best way to, to the, the stark contrast is the following. Former Chief Justice, the late Chief Justice Rehnquist, had written in a, in a book that in times of armed conflict, the role of the court is to be reticent to the executive. His equivalent, the, the president, the former president of the Israeli Supreme Court, Barack, very much believed in active judicial review and wrote in a, in a case that logistical considerations, for instance, you know, creating um, um, detention centers and transferring prisoners from point A to point B and the whole logistics of, of armed conflict, of which they are enormous. He wrote that logistical considerations of the executive are not to be used as a deterrent to the rights of the individual. Think about that. Meaning, in simple English, to the executive, deal with it. So that's all part, that's one. Two, obviously and tragically, in Israel we've been dealing with terrorism, you know, for decades and decades. It, this is new to the American paradigm. Um, that, that, that's the good news. In many ways, the Israeli... Um, polity understands, A, the reality of terrorism and the limitations of counterterrorism. I would suggest that the American polity, because this is so new to it, does not fully understand terrorism and absolutely does not understand nor appreciate the limits of counterterrorism. Furthermore, I would suggest that the, the media, and the media here in Israel, is incredibly important, not always effective, but a very important watchdog of the, of the executive, very critical of the executive, and very much um, concerned that, that the executive, you know, understand limits. I'm not sure that the American media plays that same watchdog role. So it means we have two watchdogs here, the court and the media. In America, I'm not sure the court really is a watchdog. I'm not convinced the media is. And the American polity is not really sophisticated yet in understanding the limits of counterterrorism, to make the point. If an American president went on TV tonight, not important, Democrat, Republican, Tea Party, Green Party, whatever it's called, went on TV tonight and said the following magical words, my fellow Americans, some of you are going to die in a terrorist attack tonight. Literally, the public would throw tomatoes at him. Right. Here in Israel, if the prime minister, again, from the, you know, the, whichever party, left, right, center, were to go on TV tonight and say, my fellow Israelis, we have defeated terrorism. The Israeli polity would throw, take its tomatoes and throw it at, at, at him because we know that's just incorrect. We are here in that sense. We, I don't know, say like Pavlov's dogs, mm -hmm. but we are have a far greater understanding about the limits of counterterrorism and the inevitability of successful terrorist attacks. Turn that around. I'm not convinced that the American polity understands that, indeed, there will continue to be successful terrorist attacks. It could have happened in the, you know, on the plane in Detroit. It could have happened on 42nd Street. It's not, you know, for there, but for the grace of God, go I. And the next attack is right around the corner. 
it's two very distinct paradigms. That said, I think that there are clear takeaways from, from the Israeli counterterrorism experience that indeed are applicable to the American. And to go back to the op-ed, one is absolute limits in terms of how interrogations are conducted. B, the limits of how, uh, when detention is, is, can be, when something can and can't be detained, the criteria for detention, and the requirement that the court be fully engaged in it. The best example I would suggest, we haven't talked about this, but if you look at the American drone policy in Afghanistan, Pakistan, I, for instance, am a supporter, have been, of Israel's targeted killing policy, and I'm a supporter of America's drone policy, provided, huge provided, huge caveat, that there are criteria in place for who is a legitimate target, when is he a legitimate target, and under what circumstances is he a legitimate target, all that intended on the one hand, if need be to kill somebody who needs to be killed, but to minimize the loss of human life. And if you look at the large collateral damage that has become almost inevitable with respect to American drone um, um, actions, it shows, from my perspective, a lack of articulated criteria, a lack of guidelines, and a lack of pr- a process in terms of determining guidelines and criteria. And oversight. That is, those, three, those three are inherent to the Israeli targeted killing policy. And, and eventually the, over, the lack of oversight in this in, in our side, because some of Correct. these things have gone on and we're just now, and I say we, I don't think just the public, but I know members of Congress are hearing about things in the last few months that they, I would say based on the reaction, clearly didn't know. But let's look at uh, one more thing about the counterterrorism, uh, or at least one area of the counterterrorism is that the American culture has not, shall we say, warmed up to the history of Islam. It does not understand the Arab world, typically. Um, I was born in 69, for instance. My earliest memories of international conflict were the uh, airplane seizures and the t- taking of hostages. Um, if it had not been for over overcoming my own programming, um, you could wave Iran around in five seconds and I'd be afraid. You could wave around all sorts of people and I'd be afraid. I'm not, though. Because I'm aware of the histories. Um, do you think that there is a, uh, like you were referring, to the difference between how in Israel it's almost accepted that something's going to happen because of the frequency? And here, we have it happen so infrequently, we don't have a fairly sober conversation about it. But basically, what my point was when the TV anchors get back on TV and they're like, oh, yeah, we want to, we've got to do this and we got to do that. And they're all, you know, first off, most of them have never served in the military when they talk like that. And um, the second, if there's, it's it's some of the worst counterterrorism rhetoric you can possibly ever have because all I got to do is play that exact audio in uh, Jordan and in Afghanistan or somewhere and yeah we've lost any sympathy that uh, we might have gained as neighbors. Yeah, you make a re- you make a very important point, which is an important strategic question. How do we educate ourselves? It's it's complicated. Obviously, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. We also have to be able to speak. Um, truthfully, um, and again, different different paradigms um, here because we all. You know, this is, I don't know if you've been to Israel, or, but it's a small place. You know, the, the famous expression is, "We all know each other." We, you know, my my neighbor's son and this son. I mean, we're all part of the same package here. Um, it also means that precisely as I said to you earlier, because we understand the reality of terrorism. We don't hide things here. I mean, in terms of we speak, we have, you know, children, and we speak truth to our children about 
the risks of life as they are here. Right. That, I would suggest, is not an, is not an inherent part of the American um, psyche. There's more of a tendency to be very politically correct, to, to smooth things over, to maybe hide things. Um, and then when something happens, it's, oh, my God, something just happened. Whereas here, when it happens, we all know the drill. We know where, where to go and what to do and where to, how to get information, and my kids know what to do and how to get information and so on. We're just much more, in that sense, trained here. Right. Which is, unfor- which is unfortunate, right, right. Of course it's unfortunate. Um, we, have, we say here in Israel, you know, it's not Switzerland here, but it's, it's the reality of our life here that we just live in a certain milieu, and you have, to, you have to understand that milieu and be realistic with it. Now, would you, would you have any criticisms of, uh, I, don't, I don't really believe in a left and a right, but I do know that there are convenient handles for large groups of thought, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, do you think in the left movement of America um, that there are areas where there's a lot of assumptions that need to be challenged? Yeah, I think I think I would say both with respect to the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans alike, there are um, fundamental misperceptions in terms of what we're talking about, both with respect to terrorism and counterterrorism alike. Right. Um, is a totally different subject. You know, I testified a couple of times in Congress. The the, the dialogue or the the, the the tension between the Democrats and the Republicans really prevents honest discussion. And if you're trying to have a, a discussion about terrorism, counterterrorism, and you're trying to get beyond the 20-second sound bites, it, it really requires a, a rearticulation of, of how we conduct business. And I would and I would clearly say that that both left and right, or Democrats and Republicans are equally guilty of the 20-second soundbite culture, equally guilty of two ships passing in the night without listening to each other, and equally guilty of not having an engaged, honest discussion about terrorism and counterterrorism. I would, I would, I would fault both equally. My experience in counterterrorism is extremely domestic. I had two men who lived across the street, younger, an older brother, who fought everyone that looked at them wrong. And... Um, I have a little bit of a button myself, so I knew I had to watch myself and be cool. But we we butted heads within weeks of my arrival in the neighborhood, and I I determined fairly on fairly early on that since they lived right across the street, that yeah, I might be able to fight one of them. I might be able to fight both of them. I might be able to get some people over here. I, I you know I might be able to protect myself. I might be able to call the police. You know those things can go through your head. But basically, I knew that there was an unsustainable circular reality right in front of me that I had to think long-term about because of all the consequences. And that, again, that's my domestic sense of counterterrorism because these guys did terrorize the neighborhood. Everyone out there, when they came out there fighting in the street, everyone went inside, locked their doors, stayed safe. And I still felt the need to go out and check, make every, make sure everything in front of my own home was fine. Um, but I had to be mindful that the nature of the people I was dealing with was quite different than mine. And um, I had to think of very long-term um, actions there. Now, when it comes to, for instance, eroding the support from Al Qaeda or eroding the support from Hamas or, or any group that we want to name as the opponent, um, there are there there are a lot of areas where we have to um, lay the ground and um, with uh, neighbors and with um, other entities to do so. Do you think that the United States is going to uh, achieve? Um, Maybe in the next ten years, do you think we're heading on a way 
to achieving fairly effective counterterrorism strategies on the national policy? Or are we still running around in a morass? Because to uh, me, I don't see. Right. I mean, here's I feel a, like we're a, just we're we're at day one. I feel like we're at two thousand one, still trying to determine the uh, the nature of it. We have people who are counterterrorism experts who don't agree. They get up on TV and say one thing, and the other guy says another. And um, you know, my response to that is, is a very simple analogy. Um, I don't know if you're a baseball fan or not, but I would say that we are somewhere between um, the dugout and the on-deck circle nine years later, nowhere between the on-deck circle and home plate. Wow. Wow. Well, I uh, I hope that you will join us again. I'd like to take a look at, the future at some of the different cases that come up. And um, it's very important that we understand the legal framework that this operates in, because again, at least with the American media, there's a whole lot of clamoring that goes on to be the the most uh, articulate legal voice. And in the end, I, I find people still don't understand uh, the the laws that we're operating under and the the ever shifting mo- uh, moves. Uh, I'll tell you what, there is actually one question I want to ask: Is uh, did you catch sure. the exchange between Eric Holder and Lindsey Graham uh, about a year ago when Lindsey Graham said, "If you caught if you caught Bin Laden, if you caught him today." I'll do my best Lindsey Graham for you. Uh, if you caught him today, where, where would you try him? And uh, Eric Holder says, well, it would depend. Oh, it would depend. Well, let me tell you where where you'd try him. You know, he had his own answer already crafted. But to me, I thought Eric Holder's que- uh, answer, although not satisfying to many, was appropriate. And the one question I would have asked him was, it depends on what. <laughs> what what changes where we hold a person in forum? Um, yeah, my response to that is, uh, yeah, it's, give you a 30-second response to that. Sure. The administration announced with, you know, drumroll that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was going to be tried in the district court in southern New York. Right. Then the mayor of New York said, excuse me, and then the attorney general said, well, maybe not. And then Rahm Emanuel pushed Holder aside, threw him under the bus, and said that the, that we'll deal with it. And the president of the United States, he's got two other things on his plate. You mentioned BP. The president <laughs> said he he himself is going to determine where where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed will be brought to trial. Well, obviously nothing has been done with that since. And the primary reason for that is, and I go back to your question from two seconds ago, there is no policy that has been articulated nor implemented on a consistent basis either by the Bush administration and certainly not by the Obama administration. That's the, the if you want a 20-second soundbikers, that's it. There is no policy implemented nor articulated or articulated and implemented with respect to the operational counterterrorism under and subservient to the rule of law. There you have it. I want to ask you a quick question on your thoughts on the um, use of private contractors. First off, is it exclusive to the U.S., um, or uh, do we find it elsewhere? And what do you think are the international laws related to private contractors like Z, a.k.a. Blackwater? Right. I don't know if it's used elsewhere. Um, I would warmly recommend that others not use it. I think that the American experience with Blackwater is the, is the case study, the poster child for why not to do it. Um, they're, you know, beyond the control, outside of the scope of the UCM, UCMJ, the Uniform Court of Military Justice. Um, there really is no control over them. They pretty much run rampant, do um, um, as they as they wish. 
um, and the fact that they're outside the, the the command structure literally makes them, for lack of a better term, sorry, mercenaries. Uh, their actions in Iraq, obviously, some of them were criminal, but I think more important than that, they clearly brought shame in the United States. Um, and I would like to think that they are not being used anymore. And if they are being used today, then I would warmly recommend that, that decision makers proactively bring a, a crashing end to their usage. When one of the uh, representatives for Z, a.k.a. Blackwater, uh, testified just a few months ago before one of the uh, one of the Senate committees, um, he said, we will obey the laws of the lands in which uh, the country in which we operate. And he repeated that phrase, and I noticed that he didn't want to uh, include any other areas because if he's, for instance, operating in Afghanistan, exactly what legal strata would that give him? Um, uh, do do we have international and or national laws that already are on the books uh, that deal with contractors, or is that right? To the best of my recollection, and, and uh, I think there have been a very, very, very limited number, like a handful, who have been brought to trial, if it, if that at all. I think that largely they've been given a free pass, um, and by granting somebody a free pass in, in a in a war zone. It, nothing more than a green light for bad things to happen, and obviously that's what's happened. That's our argument against al-Qaeda and or I heard it plenty of times at the beginning of the Iraq war was we're fighting against people who take up no uh, a uniform, they fight for no army. Right. And so, they're, outside, they're outside the scope of authority, outside the range right. of authority. Right. Not, not subservient to any law but themselves. Um, I know that there was congressional testimony on this in the fall of, I, I would like to say, 07, um, in September of '07, um, which clearly highlighted um, the fact that they really are outside the, the boundary of the law, with all of the inherent problematicness and danger that that um, imposes and implies. So, under so, uh, existing treaties, do we have? Um, we basically really don't have an international tr- treaty. They're system outside that, the scope. They're not. Yeah. They're, they are. They are um, in a twilight zone, for lack um, of a better Mo term. Davis wants to create basically a kind of a new uh, set of conventions that would deal with this answer and, um, for instance, also would deal with Somali pirates. Uh, you know, if you have these extra-jurisdictional uh, actors. So, 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 to, to, I, I, can, I think I understand what, what Colonel Davis is getting at. What it really is is it's a much larger issue, which is called what are the rights and obligations of non-state actors. That's what we're talking about. Right, non-state actors. That's a whole different discussion, which I'm only too happy to have with you, but it is a rate which is a really important growing area of concern for people such as myself, who, if you go back to our previous conversation, are trying to articulate process and procedure, the fact that non-state actors are beyond, quote-unquote, beyond the scope, raises really important fundamental questions. Well, we'll do exactly that. I want to thank you for joining us. You've been very helpful in understanding this. We will definitely have you back to look more about the legalities. The law is a fascinating subject, and um, it's uh, if we're not, a, as they say here, you know, if, uh, if we're not a nation of laws, we're a nation of men, and uh, we were supposed to have learned post-King George III not to live like that. And, um, you know, we're still learning. Uh, we're still learning, and it's a, pro- it's a uh, process in action. So, Amos, I want to thank you, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you so much. Okay.